So I grew up at one of those churches where we were not afraid to knock on someone's door. You visited our church on Sunday morning. You filled out one of those cards where you put your name and your address. Come Monday night visitation, somebody was probably going to knock on your door. If you were a Sunday school member who was a normal sort of attender of the church and you missed for a few weeks, maybe you were sick, maybe you were on vacation, maybe you just needed time away from church folks, a reason I completely understand, yet cannot from the pulpit condone. Whatever your reason for missing church as a regular Sunday school attender, probably come Monday night, one of us was going to be knocking on your door. In fact, if you simply happened to be the neighbor of someone who had visited our church, the neighbor of someone who just hadn't been in a little while, and they were at home, we might knock on your door. We were pretty good at knocking on doors. At 14, I could walk up to a stranger's door and knock on it. Now, we weren't as good at knocking on doors as the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons have taken knocking on doors to, to the level of an art form. We weren't that good, but we were pretty good at it. And I remember this one time, I was about 14 years old, and I was out with our, one of our associate pastors and another member of the church. And this is the days before Google Maps and before, uh, before Garmin in your car. So you had to re- if you wanted to find where somebody lived, you really had to work for it. So there was a couple that had visited our church. We finally find their house way out in the country. We knock on the door. This really delightful woman comes to the door, invites us into her home. You could smell they had just finished supper. I don't remember what it was, but for the sake of argument, let's say it was spaghetti, all right? They had just finished spaghetti. The, the, the lady of the house was delightful. She was very talkative, chatty. We walk in the house. She welcomes us. She's talking. She's talking. The husband, however, uh, we'll call him less than chatty, all right? He was sitting on the couch watching ESPN, and it clearly had all of the charisma of a knot on a log, all right? She's talking to us, welcoming us in. He's watching TV, you know? Well, one of the goals of this knocking on people's door, if you're a good Southern Baptist boy like I was, was to ascertain where they were going to spend eternity. It's just what you do with strangers, you know? Knock, knock. Nice to meet you. Where will you spend eternity? That sort of thing. We started this conversation with this woman, and, 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 and she said to us, she says, oh, I have a very rich spiritual life. I love God. Uh, she said, I pray all the time. My prayer life is very important to me. And we're just sort of nodding along listening. And she said, in fact, you're going to think I'm crazy. You're going to think I'm crazy. And if, if, if anyone ever starts a sentence with, you're going to think I'm crazy, by the end of the sentence, you probably are going to think they're crazy. Like, they're probably not lying to you. But she said, you're going to think I'm crazy, but um, this morning, my big prayer to God was, Lord God, Let me have a good hair day. And then she pointed to her head and said, See, God answered prayer. And in her defense, in 1993, her hair was perfect. I mean, it was was not as tall as it would have been in 1989. Not as short as it would have been in 1997. So for 1993, her hair was perfect. It was beautiful. And she was right. I thought she was crazy. The associate pastor that was with us, now he was a good minister. He said, Oh, no, that's not crazy. And on the inside, I'm thinking, yes, that's crazy. That's nuts. Lady, there are children dying in the world right now. There are war-torn countries, communities with bombs falling on them, people with diseases, famine, and you are going to waste God's time praying for a good hair day? You're crazy. 
You see, at 14, I was kind of judgy, all right? At 14, I was, I was like a teenager. I was self-conscious but not self-aware. Does that make sense? It's pretty standard for a teenager. And at 14, had I actually thought to myself, well, what do most of your prayers look like? I might have found that some of my prayers were absurd as well. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be smart. I wanted to know everything, and I wanted everyone to know that I knew everything. You've probably met someone like that. Um, He's out of town this week. He'll be back next week. (laughs) That was not in the manuscript. That really was just a moment. You felt that. That was real. But at 14 and 15, as a teenager, I wanted to be known as smart. That's how I found my identity. And so I literally remember praying. And this is probably worse than praying for a good hair day. I prayed, Lord God, give me the answers to this exam that I'm about to take. Not, Lord God, bless the efforts I put into studying. I didn't care about that. I just wanted the answers. Dear Lord, remind me why Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo. I can't even remember the Abba song right now as though it would help. And I even prayed sometimes. Do you remember those standardized tests where you bubble in the answers? Or Scantron, when they're, like they give it to you, the teacher. You bubble in these answers. I literally remember as a teenager praying, Lord God, if I got the answer wrong, just change it in the stack. <laughs> as though God wields some sort of magical divine number two pencil from heaven that just sort of magically descends with its eraser and in the middle of the stack, finds that for number 13 I should have put D instead of B and just sort of goes, got it, Donovan. And then the the, the divine number two pencil reascends to heaven. Sometimes our prayers are silly. And maybe that's okay. Maybe if we're at a place in our life where we need a silly prayer, pray that silly prayer. Maybe God meets us in our silly prayers. One of the things that I find fascinating about the passage of Scripture that Pharaoh just read for us in the book of Proverbs is that it it records the only prayer in the entire book of Proverbs. Now, if you read the book of Proverbs, you get all of these two-line bits of wisdom. I mean, just flying at you, two lines at a time. It's kind of fun to read and can get monotonous sometimes. You might just open up and go, oh, the glory of youth is their strength, but the beauty of the aged is their gray hair. A lot of beauty going on out here today, I see. But that's how the book of Proverbs goes along. It's mostly these two-line bits of wisdom. And then suddenly, near the end of the book, we're given a prayer. And I think that's significant. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. And for 29, we've read mostly these Proverbs. And then at 30, we come to a prayer. What's the significance of that? What I want us to think about this morning, the main question that I want us to consider is what role does prayer play as we seek wisdom for our lives? Wisdom isn't just about knowledge. It even isn't just about discernment, but it's rather acting on the knowledge and the discernment that we have to live a good life before God. What role does prayer play in helping us drive our lives towards living out wisdom? This is a strange passage for many reasons, not just because it's the only prayer recorded in the book of Psalms, Proverbs, but also because we don't know who wrote it. None of the Proverbs do we really know who wrote them. A lot of them say uh, Proverb of Solomon. What most scholars think is that these Proverbs were therefore collected during the time of Solomon. But the book itself was put together hundreds of years after Solomon had passed away. But this character here, we read in in, in verse verse 1 of chapter 30. If you've got your Bibles open, just stay there because we're going to read back through these verses a little bit. The passage begins, The words of Agur, son of Jacob. 
an oracle. We don't know who Agur was. His name isn't even a Hebrew name. His name actually means collector or gatherer in, in terms of someone who collects or gathers wisdom. And I think it's fascinating that this person, if he existed or if, or if he's sort of made up by the scribes to tell us something about the nature of wisdom, that his contribution to the book of Proverbs it consists of a prayer. So there are four characteristics of Agur's prayer that I think we can hold on to this morning that will help us in our own lives as we seek wisdom in our lives of prayer. Read with me again verses 1 through 3. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, and Oracle. Thus says the man, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, how can I prevail? Surely I am too stupid to be human. If you have children out here and they just heard the word stupid and you have a problem with it, just take it up with God, not me, okay? It's kind of a rude word. Come on, God, really? I am too stupid to be human. I do not have human understanding. Verse 3, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the holy ones. The first lesson that I think we can look into Agur's conversation with God, wrestling with God and learn, is that he confesses the limitations of human understanding. In the life of wisdom, one of the first things that we need to embrace is our own ignorance. At some point in your life, you may have been forced to read Plato in school. Not play with Plato, but rather read the Greek philosopher Plato. And when Plato is writing about his own teacher Socrates, he tells a story that one time the oracle tells Socrates, you, Socrates, are the wisest man in all of Athens. And so what does Socrates do? Socrates says, well, that can't be because I don't know much. I'm not that wise. But Socrates was kind of a smart aleck, okay? So what Socrates would do is he would go around to people in Athens who were supposed to be wise, and he would converse with them. And then in conversing with them, he would sort of show that they weren't that wise. Does that make sense? It's kind of like a jerk move, you know, with the person you avoid at the party, Socrates, you know. He's alone in the corner, and there's a reason for that. So Socrates, in one of his conversations, uncovers this particular person not to be wise, and he concludes with this statement. I appear to be wiser than he because I do not fancy I know what I do not know. I don't pretend to know what I don't know. So in the Greek tradition of wisdom, knowledge of your own ignorance is a move towards wisdom. And in this Hebrew text, we see that in the life of prayer, when we encounter God, when we reflect on who God is, we are made aware of our own shortcomings, of our own ignorance. And that is one of the ways that we can move towards wisdom is by knowing our own shortcomings. And Agur knows his shortcomings. I'm weary, O oh God. I don't understand much. And then verses, verse 4. There's a second thing that I think we can hold on to of what it means for us to grow in wisdom in the context of our prayer, prayer life. Verse 4 says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is this person's name? And what is the name of the person's child? Surely you know. I think what Agur encounters here is that when he considers creation, he is awestruck at the majesty of God. If you chase down each of those four sentences that he mentions, the questions he asks, he is actually identifying what the ancients believed were the four fundamental elements of creation. When he mentions heaven, when he says, who has descended to heaven, who has ascended to heaven and come down, heaven is associated with fire. 
When he says, who has wrapped up, well, who has gathered the wind in the hollow of his hand, he's talking about air. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, he's talking about water. Who has established all the ends of the earth, he's talking about the earth. In the ancient world, there were four fundamental elements, fire, air, wind, fire, air, water, earth. And in the context of his prayer, of his reaching out to God, he contemplates the wonders of creation itself and he is struck with awe. But his awe doesn't stop at creation itself, but rather extends to the creator himself. In the context of his prayer, he is struck with awe at the creator of the world. Earlier in Proverbs we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I don't think that fear indicates terror. I think it indicates reverence and awe. And we read Agur's passage here. He is awestruck with the majesty of God. We read verse 7. This is another, I think, important point. And this is where he really gets to the meat of his prayer. Verses 7 through 9 are really the center of, of, of Agur's prayer. Two things I ask of you, and we're going to get to the two things in verse seven, uh, in verses 8 and 9. But this next line is what I want us to stand on, stay on for just a second. Do not deny them to me before I die. Two things I ask of you. Do not deny them to me before I die. In the context of prayer, we come to the end of our understanding. We are struck by the majesty of an eternal God. And in the face of an eternal God, I think the third, the third, the third bit of wisdom we can glean this morning comes through. And that's where Agur confronts his mortality. When we encounter an eternal God, we are struck by our own mortality. By the fact that the time that we have here is a time that we cannot determine its length. We don't have say over the hour of our birth and most of the time we don't over the hour of our death. It can be a terrifying thought in some ways. When we encounter God, we are struck with our own mortality. Henry Nouwen's one of my favorite thinkers, a Catholic priest, and he says in his book, Reaching Out, the greatest obstacle to our entering into that profound dimension of life where our prayer takes place is our all-pervasive illusion of immortality. We want to resist that. Agur is confronting that as part of his prayer to God. In this prayer, he encounters the eternal God. And in that moment of encounter, he is made more aware of his finitude. The intensity of his prayer is heightened because there is a recognition within the prayer of the mortality of the man praying. And the last thing I think we can learn, I think comes through when Agur identifies the two elements of his prayer, the center of the sort of deepest prayer of his heart. And that's found in verses 8 through 9. Remove from, far from me falsehood and lying. And the second one is this. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that I need, or I shall be full and deny you. Or I shall be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's interesting what he's praying here. The two things. 
that lying and falsehood would be far from him and that he would neither be poor nor rich. So he's praying not simply to be away from liars, but I think what he's praying is to encounter his life in its authenticity, in its actual reality. The worst lies that we encounter in life, the worst lies that he would have encountered in his life, aren't those of people around him that would say lies, but rather the lies that he might tell himself, the falsehoods that he might tell himself. And he's praying to God, God, give these to me before I die. My time is limited, but I want to encounter this life in all of its reality and in all of its authenticity. And the last thing he says, look, God, if I'm rich, I might forget you. If I'm rich, I might think that I am sufficient of myself and forget my need of you. And if I'm poor, I might steal and dishonor you in other ways. So God, just give me what I need. Just give me what I need. As we look at the prayer of this ancient, of this ancient book, I want us to consider this morning how those four lessons might be made real in our own lives. As you and I seek in our lives of prayer to know God and to grow in wisdom, how might these things come home for us? Well, the first way I think is this, is that prayer reminds us of the limitations of our human understanding. We live in a culture that expects us to be omnicompetent. We are expected to be good and to excel at everything. From the moment we raise our children, we tell them, you're supposed to be good in, in school. You're supposed to be good in athletics. You're supposed to be good at making friends. You're supposed to work hard and go to a good college. You're supposed to work hard and get a good job. Not only are you supposed to get a good job, you're supposed to work hard to get a better one and to get a better one and to get a better one. And you're supposed to be a perfect husband. And you're supposed to be a perfect wife. And you're supposed to be a perfect father or mother. You're supposed to be a perfect friend. You're supposed to be a perfect person at church. And you know what? That's exhausting. That's soul crushing, soul destroying. So when we read in the Proverbs this prayer of a man saying, I am weary, O Lord, I don't understand it all. That's not a prayer of defeat. It's a prayer of liberation and of freedom. When we come before God, we can say, God, I know I'm just human and I don't have it all together, and I'm kind of tired. Prayer reminds us it's okay to be limited. That's the nature of human life. How can we bring the second point home? That in prayer we are all struck at the majesty of God. In prayer we are all struck that we encounter the creator of the universe. The 18th century uh, German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who if you weren't forced to read at some point in your life, consider yourself lucky. I'm just kidding. Usually, uh, I don't know if I'm kidding, actually. But he said this once. He said, two things awe me most. The starry sky above me and the moral law within me. When we are so wrapped up in the minutia of our day-to-day, when we encounter God in prayer, we can, we can recognize the awesome majesty of God and it causes us to have new perspective on our lives. 
when our lives feel as though they might crush us and we recognize the God that we commune with is the God who spun the stars into existence, that this is the God that wants to know us and commune with us, it causes us to confront our lives with more freedom. To be awestruck at God. We come to God in prayer, recognize our limitations. We recognize the majesty of God. And we too, like the writer of this proverb, recognize our own mortality. Later in that same book that I quoted from Henry Nouwen, he has this quote. He says, We have to unmask our illusion of immortality, fully accept death as our human destiny, and reach out beyond the existence, beyond the limits of our existence, to our God. And this is the part that that brings this home for me. To our God, out of whose intimacy we are born. Rather than confronting our mortality being something that, can, that, that fills us with fear, that fills us with terror, we can recognize the goodness of that awesome God who has given us life itself is the same God who will continue to give us life eternal. When we know that God, we know the intimacy that that God has drawn us into. Our mortality doesn't stop us in fear. But rather we know we rest in the hands of a God who loved us into existence and will continue to love us and give us newness of life. So we see that our human understanding is limited. That God is majestic and that prayer confronts us with our mortality. And I also believe that just like Agur's heart found the deepest prayer for him, in the life of prayer, we come to know the deepest prayers of our own hearts. In the life of prayer, we come to know what we truly yearn for. Thinking back to that time when I was 14 and I encountered this woman with perfect 1993 hair who had prayed for it. I wonder what made her pray for a great hair day. Maybe she needed to feel beautiful. Maybe the not-on-the-log husband who was watching ESPN wasn't giving her enough attention. Maybe, maybe she just needed to feel and to be known as beautiful. Maybe she had come to a point in her life where she recognized that the body is the temple of, of God and she just wanted to honor that temple by having nice hair one day. I don't know the prayer of her heart. I can tell you that at 14, 15 when I was praying for the divine number two pencil to descend from heaven and correct the answers on my Scantron, I can tell you that I was an insecure kid who was looking for affirmation, who was looking to be told, ultimately, you don't have to earn love. You don't have to be smart enough to earn love. You just be who you are, and you are loved. The prayer that I was praying was for the right answers, but the real prayer beneath that was for love and acceptance and security in my relationship with God to know that God loved me and I was worth something. That was the deeper prayer that my heart was really reaching towards, even though I didn't know that yet and didn't have words for it. I believe that as we drive deeper into the lives of prayer, our encounters with God, that we can learn to know our heart's deepest prayer, our heart's deepest longing. 
One of the greatest Jewish thinkers of the 20th century was Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he died in 1972, but a few years before he died, he had a near-fatal heart attack. And as he was at home recuperating, he had a visitor who was one of his, one of his sort of disciples, another rabbi that he had mentored, a guy by the name of Samuel Dresner. And Dresner had gone to Heschel's house to check in on his mentor to see how he's doing, how he's recovering. And Heschel said to him when he got there, he said, Sam, when I regained consciousness after the heart attack, my first feelings were not of despair or anger. I felt only gratitude to God for my life, for every moment I had lived. I was ready to depart. Take me, O Lord, I thought, I have seen so many miracles in my lifetime. And then Heschel makes reference to a prayer that he had written years before that he knew Dresner had himself read. And Heschel says this, This is what I meant when I wrote, I did not ask for success. I asked for wonder. And you gave it to me. That was Heschel's prayer to God. God, give me wonder. And his response to his disciple was, God gave it to me. For Agur, the deepest desires of his heart, his heart's prayer was that he live an authentic life, that he live a life that honor God. The deepest prayer of Heschel's heart was that he respond to this world with wonder. And God granted that prayer. This morning, what is the deepest prayer of your heart? This morning, what would you ask of God? Please pray with me. Oh, Lord God, you know our coming in and our going out. Lord God, you are the one who gives us life and breath and sustains us in it, Lord. We come to you broken. We come to you tired. We come to you confessing you are a majestic God who knows our hearts deep desires. Lord, oh, grow us in wisdom as we seek you in the life of prayer. Amen.